Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me John Toomey. He's a workplace well-being thought leader uh, out of Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he's also the global chairperson at the Global Workplace Wellbeing Initiative, part of the Global Wellness Institute in Miami. So, John, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you with me. Hi, Eric. It's really good to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Excellent. So we've got a, a really exciting episode, lots of themes to talk through. Why don't you start out talking about your story? Uh, how, how did John get into this topic in this area? Yeah, look, it's a, that's a fair question. I mean, I'm 62 years old and I, um, I did my first seminar in a workplace in 1984 because I was actually running uh, fitness leader courses at night, teaching people to be gym instructors. And mm -hmm. uh, somebody invited me to come and present at their company. Now, I've done a lot of things in my life. I worked in high-performance roles in professional football for a long time, but always had this incredible curiosity. And uh, I've always been one of those people, if somebody gives me an answer to a question and it doesn't land for me, I've got to keep looking until I learn. Right. So that takes me to a place where I grasp things and, <clears throat> and understand them, complex things, and I have a skill to give it back to somebody in a simple way. So I've, I've found my, I suppose, my superpower of educating workforces in all areas of health and well-being, whether it be fatigue prevention, mm -hmm. resilience, mental well-being, um, all those personal, um, I suppose, self-care topics and um, I've been doing a lot of that in white collar marketplaces <clears throat> and then in 2008 when the GFC hit my business evaporated overnight <laughs> and uh, it took me a while to find my way into a new realm and, and that was through safety budgets because they needed the sort of education that I could deliver and uh, and I found my sweet spot because I grew up in, in a pub in working class area in mm. Melbourne and I know how to speak to guys in, in those realms. So, uh, yeah, that started an, an amazing journey that's been running for about oh, 12 years now. Nobody goes to a pub in Melbourne. I've never seen that occur. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, never done. Never. It's amazing how many of those pubs have been turned into cafes now. <laughs> really? Uh, so we touch on fatigue. Why don't we start there in terms of the physiology of fatigue and some of the key highlights there because we know fatigue is in a very strong error precursor if we're fatigued we're more likely to make a mistake um, it's being researched and documented in aviation but lots of other spaces so maybe let's start there yeah look it's a great place to start and <clears throat> there's been so much work done really pushing and shoving companies to come up with better rostering systems and you know, it's been amazing the work and companies have, most companies have tried really hard to do everything they can to make it as easy as possible for the worker. 
where I focus on is the personal responsibility of the worker to know what creates fatigue in their universe. Right. Now, obviously, sleep is one. And mm-hmm. everybody knows you need to get plenty of sleep and good sleep. And if you're not a good sleeper, you need to get help with it so that you can master the art of sleep, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I could sleep for Australia. Um, it's, um, But, you know, so we help people with that. But there's a couple of hidden ones. And probably the most significant is dehydration. Hmm. And, and, and this is one that gets skimmed over time and time and time again. And to not go into too much uh, detail around the physiology because it takes a bit of time, but basically your body's trying to get rid of heat all the time and it uses water to do it. Sure. It traps heated molecules of water and those molecules of water they end, up, end up going to your sweat glands or to your lungs. Every time you breathe out, you pass out water vapour. Mm-hmm. And all that water's coming from your bloodstream. And if your blood's not replenishing, the water level in your blood drops, your blood thickens, which then compromises the efficiency of your circulation. And as soon as that happens, you stop getting adequate blood flow to your brain. And when your brain's not getting enough blood, it's not getting enough oxygen or glucose. And the very first Um, reflex response that your body kicks into is a yawn Hmm. because it's trying to blow off carbon dioxide and get oxygen in and what happens with most people when they start yawning they go looking for something to give them a pick-me-up so they might have a coffee or or which dehydrates you more (laughs) exactly or they go those energy drinks which are even more of a disaster and they come back to their workstation and they feel better but that was because they walked and the walking pushed their blood pressure up. Now, the challenge for people who are doing manual work, because they're working physically, their, um, uh, their blood pressure is up high. So they can be getting really, really dehydrated and not get that first symptom. And eventually, the second symptom of dehydration is when you haven't fixed the problem, the body wants to get you horizontal and slow the metabolic rate to reduce heat production. Mm. And so that second symptom is sleepiness. And that's why people fall asleep at the wheel of motor vehicles. They're just dehydrated. But again, if somebody's working hard, they can crash into, into heat stress uh, because they become so critically dehydrated. There's just not enough water in their body. And to give you a bit of an example of that, I was working with some guys who do road maintenance out in the north of South Australia. And sometimes in the summer out there, the temperatures hover around 50 degrees centigrade. Just a little bit warm. Very hot. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, you know, and for those who are, um, who are not quite sure what that would be, that's about 122, 123 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, so some of these guys I was working with, by four o'clock in the afternoon... They were so dehydrated, their urine was dark orange, and they had already consumed 15 litres of water. So it's critical. And the the tip I give, I mean, I give people a tip that you should drink a litre of water for every 25 kilograms of body weight per day. But if you're out working in exposed conditions and it's hot, Mm. you need to drink enough water so that you're having a big urination every couple of hours and it's close to watercolour. 
Sure. And so for some workers, that's 20 litres of water a day. And, and obviously, if you're drinking that amount of water, you also need to supplement minerals. Um, so, yeah, dehydration. You know, if most organisations really focused on that one, they would, they would clean up a lot of their fatigue problems. Interesting. So is this something you talked about personal responsibility? How, how do you convey this to an organization? Is it something you train workers? Uh, how, how do you touch that and how do you get into the personal responsibility side? Yeah, see, well, the, the thing is people are not dumb, right? Hmm. And when I go into an organization and I give them a, and I've got a group of construction workers in front of me, for example, I could have 200 construction workers sitting there in the room and I take them step by step through the physiology of dehydration, and they recognize the symptoms. They know they have the yawning attacks. They know they get sleepy when they're driving their car in the afternoon. The penny drops for them. Mm. And when I give them them the instruction as to how to fix it, they just go and do it. In fact, you know, I've had um, sites where um, uh, (laughs) managers have rung me up and said, you won't believe what I saw today. One of the old, gnarly old blokes, they were loading up the truck to head out to the job. And one of the young blokes turned up and was about to get onto the truck. And the old bloke said, where's your water bottles? You're not getting <laughs> on this truck without your water bottles, you know. So, <laughs> like, yeah, you know? And, and the thing is, somebody who has been battling dehydration, as soon as they start drinking a heap more water, their energy levels go through the roof. So they get instantaneous knowledge of results sure so it's pretty cool yeah and then it just becomes an easy life habit for them okay so so you touch as well in terms of the personal responsibility how do you drive that within an organization and i, I know you you're going to have a, a pretty incredible story fairly soon um from from the melbourne from a melbourne construction project but tell me a little bit in terms of how do you drive personal responsibility in an organization yeah, so it's it's a really interesting thing, and, that, and this is a, an education thing, and it's a buy-in thing, you know, um, for everybody. And, and, it, and it's a, a bit of a process, you know, like I, I'll give a two-hour seminar on this where I talk the guys through it. Mm-hmm. But basically that, you know, anything that shows up in my universe is mine, you know, mm-hmm. and that includes the response I create to something. So, for example... I could be sitting there and you could walk into the room and start yelling at me and insulting me. Yeah? Sure. Not likely, could, but, but yeah. we could pretend, I could yes. <laughs> you, I could blame you for destroying my day. Yes, you could. But the reality is the response that I create to you doing that to me, that's my response. Mm-hmm. I could also have a compassionate response like, wow, what's happened with Eric today? I hope he's okay. You right. Know? Right? But... <laughs> But we, we, we become reactive. Right. And, and being reactive is no good because you're out of control then. And, and you know, people really get this. When you, when you actually stop to take note of how you're responding to things, even when you're... And I use storytelling, you know, to, to give guys examples. You know, I say to them, how many of you have ever had somebody cut you off in the traffic and you decided it was your job to teach them a harsh lesson? And why you shouldn't do that, the traffic, you know. <laughs> and of course, they'll put their hands up. And I said, well, think of a, a time when somebody did catch off in the traffic. And they'll contemplate that. And I said, how do you know that person's child just didn't just die? Hmm. You don't know. You know. Your mind jumps to all sorts of conclusions because you're in a reactive state. And the thing is, just by hearing that lecture, that doesn't take you out of a reactive state. 
But in the workforce, everybody can help each other a little bit and go, man, you've been a bit reactive at the moment. What's going on? (laughs) And it can be compassionate. It can be done with kindness and friendliness to the point where everybody starts to get better at managing their own universe and not just being swept along by temptation and circumstance, you know? Which can get you also in harm's way and in in danger's way the minute you start getting reactive because you're not thoughtful and intentful in terms of your actions. Well, you know... I, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm careful when I say this, mm-hmm. but how many people are in prison in your country, in the U.S., in Australia, because of a, a moment of reactive madness? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the bottom line. And so, as a society and as a community. It's a good idea to help each other with our reactivity. <laughs> Absolutely. You had a great story when we first connected uh, from football. Um, that, to me, connects really well with this. Maybe oh. if you don't mind sharing it, because I think it, it's about the response that you give at, at, at one point in time. If it, if, it, if it makes sense to jump into that one. Well, yeah. I mean, look, it's a good story. And, and I do tell them workplaces a lot because it's a genuine wake-up call. And... Um, it was a huge wake-up call for me. So for any of you listeners that don't know what Australian Rules football is, pull up YouTube and just watch some highlight videos of Australian Rules football. It's the best game on the planet. And, um, and, and it's a very fast game, and it's played on a very big field. The field's about you know, 200 yards long and 180 yards wide, and it's oval-shaped, and there's no offside, so the players are spread all over the field. And after I finished working in football, I was in my early 40s. I went back to play at a local level. And the thing about Australian rules football, it is played all over the place, suburban levels. It's, you know, um, it's incredible. And anyway, um, we were playing a game one day and the team we were playing were from a, a pretty tough working class area of town. There was a guy on their team, big, powerful guy, bodybuilder, And he was running around throwing haymakers, you know, king hitting people and uh, getting behind packs and just throwing these punches, belting people from behind. And and I said to the umpire, what are you going to do about that? And the umpire said, just concentrate on your own game, which is umpire speak for, I'm too scared to do anything about that. And and fair enough too, umpires are not big people. And... um, so I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm the big hero in this team. I'm the biggest. I'm six foot four, you know, and I'm the most experienced. So I'm going to have to pop this bloke off to sleep before he hurts somebody. So I was running around looking for my opportunity to swing one at him and knock him out. And um, I must have been just starting to mature a little bit by then, Eric, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> I started to have second thoughts on that. And I started to think about the consequences of that action. Sure. And I realised that that would be a stupid thing to do because his teammates would then react to that and it would be full on. So when the quarter time siren went, I ran over to him and I said, excuse me, mate, you got a sec. Mm-hmm. And he shaped up to me, you know. I said, hey, it's okay, I just want to talk to you. And he said, what about? I said, listen, mate, um, you don't know me, uh, but I'm a pretty good guy. And all my teammates, brilliant guys. Some of them are dads and their kids are here watching. And I said, look, I imagine you're a really good guy too and I imagine all your teammates are really good guys. So um, I can't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Right. 
and I swear his face nearly fell off. Oh. And he looked at me and he said, oh, mate, I'm so sorry, mate. I can be such an idiot sometimes. I said, really? He goes, oh, I get carried away. I can be such an idiot at times. I don't even think. I said, wow. I said, well, I'll tell you what. Put your fists away. Let's have a really good game of footy, and I'll buy you beer after the game. And he goes, right. yeah, all right, mate. So off I trot, and all I can hear behind me is him yelling out, sorry, mate. <laughs> sorry, mate. So the rest of the game, we had a great game. I can't even tell you who won, you know, but there's a few times he'd run past me and go, oh, well done, mate, you know. It was just a, he became an encouraging person. And uh, anyway, after the game, I was in the social rooms and he came walking through the crowd with a couple of beers and handed me one. And I said, I was going to buy you the beer. And he said, oh, no, mate, I owe you the beer. And I said, why? And he <laughs> said, because I've not enjoyed a game of footy like that since I was a little kid. Oh, wow. I said, you're kidding and he goes, no, it was, uh, he goes, I loved it out there today. And I said, well, you played a good game. Because I had attention on him, I saw the things he did, and I was right. able to rattle off a lot of things he'd done. And I said, you're a pretty good player. You should play like that more often, <laughs> you know. And he goes, yeah, I probably should. And um, the conversation went quiet. And I said, um, but how about that other stuff? How's that working for you? Mm. And he said, uh, yeah, no, not pretty good. I said, have you got kids? And he said, oh, I've got three. And I said, do you see them? And he no. said, no, I don't. And now for me, that's heartbreaking. Right. That is so heartbreaking. And I thought in that moment, what is his football club doing? Mm. Because that's what football clubs are for. Right. So I said to him, I know a fellow who specializes in working with guys like you. Would you like some help? Mm. And he said... I probably need it, don't I? I said, you bet you do. So I went through all the process, connected him up with my mate on the Monday, hooked him up, and about 11 months later, I got a text from my mate, and the text just said, he's seen his kids this weekend. Oh, wow. And as I say to the guys in the, um, in the seminars, not everybody who's behaving like an idiot is an idiot. Right. You know? So there's so much care that we can take of people... Mm. And the ones who are behaving the worst, they probably need the most care. <clears throat> right. And I think it's it's a powerful story because you could have responded fist for fist. You could have been aggressive. <clears throat> you were about to go down that path, just like the person who cuts you off responding. But instead you leaned in, showed care, and yeah. tried to, to, to connect with them. And obviously had a lasting impact in his life. Yeah, well, it's like... I could have done it, Eric, and I would probably still be a legend at Red Hill Football Club today, but he'd be dead. Right. So I think it's a, it's a very powerful story in terms of personal responsibility and the choices that you make, but in terms of how we show care in an organization. Absolutely. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. 
so, so tell me more about this culture of care, because in, in safety, we talk about this all the time, the importance of actively caring. Um, you, you talk about this quite often. You just shared a story around caring. What does it mean culturally to, to, to show active care? Yeah, it's so interesting, um, Eric, and it's something that disappears in wealthy societies. Hmm. And, and I'm going to justify that. So if okay. I go back, even if you go put cast your mind back 200 years mm-hmm. to where you live right now and think about your forefathers and your foremothers at living in those times, there was a lot to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Just having water supply was difficult and required constant maintenance. Having a roof over your head that was going to survive when the snow came in, mm-hmm. that required constant maintenance. How do you grow your food? How do you manage? How do you care for your crops, your animals, their pens? What do you do with sewerage? And, but you weren't just... And so when people stepped out their front doors in the morning, life demanded their attention. So their attention went out into the world to monitor, to notice, but it wasn't just themselves, it was their neighbours as well, their community. You walk down the street, you're checking things all the time. And when your attention is out in the world, your mind's not busy. (laughs) Right. But like, when was the last time you arrived home and put your key in your front door and stopped for a moment and had an anxious thought about the welfare of one of your neighbours? The reality is, in the modern world, everyone's okay. Everyone's got a safe place to sleep. They've all got food. So we don't really need to worry about anybody. Right. But the problem is, the dangers are different now. It's Mm -hmm. not the physical survival stuff. It's the survival of the self, the mental survival, the, the spiritual survival, I suppose. Because what's happening... When life's not demanding your attention, your attention wanders. Right. And there's lots of people out there working as hard as they can to seduce it. Mm. And probably the biggest master of seduction in the blue-collar industry are the, are the betting apps, mm. the gambling apps. Sure. And <clears throat> see, the thing is, when I was growing up in Collingwood, if you wanted to place a bet, you had to walk out the door walk down the street, round the corner to go into the betting shop. So everybody knew you were having a bet. And uh, if they got close enough, they could see how much you were betting. But the reality is, you could have placed a bet while I've been talking. Mm-hmm. And no one would know, you know. So there's all these things, and Shaquille O'Neal and all these other uh, luminaries are, you know, getting paid huge amounts of money to, to seduce young men and young women into gambling, you know. And the problem is they get themselves into trouble Mm -hmm. and then they try to hide it. And so now they're living life, all their attentions back in their mind, gnawing over their regret for their losses and how they're going to get out of it and how they're going to hide problem from their partner or whatever. And so they're stepping onto a work site and none of their attention is on what's going on around them. Right. Which then gets you at higher risk of, of an accident because your, your attention's not on the, on the task in front of you. It's distracted. Yeah. And even if you haven't succumbed to any of those things, mm-hmm. 
Most people in the modern world, most of their attention is on themselves. They become very self-absorbed. Then they're focused on my rights, my rights, my rights. But we actually all have obligations as well. Right. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so what I've been teaching workforces to do is to relearn how to live in a more virtuous way. Now, I'm not talking about being religious here. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about bringing kindness back as one of your tools of life, bringing back encouraging others, acknowledging others, being grateful. You're practicing all of these things because sure. what happens is, you see, if I walk up to you and I'm really kind to you, I'm likely to reciprocate. And, but I feel good about who I am. Right. Like I was just sitting on the uh, on a plane in Perth waiting to take off to Melbourne and there was people loading onto the plane. You know how some people can be very slow getting into their seat. Really? And there was a woman standing there. Yeah, right. I, I think it should be a subject at school, actually, how to, how to get, on, get on a plane and get off a plane. But anyway, um, <clears throat> this uh, woman was standing next to me and I could feel her frustration rising. Sure. And she was obviously tired. It was the end of the day. And I could really feel her start to get really agitated. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at her and I said to her, that is such a beautiful blouse that you've got on. And it was a beautiful blouse. And she goes, oh, thank you. I said, it's your favourite, isn't it? And she goes, yeah, it is. Yeah, I really love it. And she it immediately, right? And the guy next to me, who runs all the indigenous um, employment affairs for a company that's got, you know, 8,000 employees, he just nudged me and he goes, that was really cool. I saw what you did there. <laughs> and it was like... And see, then I feel good. She's calmed down. She feels better. But when we do those things for others, yes, we give them something beautiful, but we can't escape the fact that our own self-acceptance rises a little bit. Hmm. And most people who've got mental health conditions, they've been in big-time self-degradation for a long time. Let's... If you don't mind, let's pivot to your story around the Melbourne, there was Melbourne Construction Project where you brought in culture of care. And I think it's, it was a very powerful story. Can you, can you share that story? Similar to your football story, I think this is a very yeah. important one to cover. Yeah, sure. And, and we can give people a link to this. I actually published this on Huffington Post. Um, but yeah, it was, um, see, Melbourne has had a huge program going for the last eight years or so um, because Melbourne, you know, seven times the world's most livable city, but its Achilles heel is level crossings, train crossings, where boom gates come down and sure. stop traffic so a train can go through. And so Melbourne, Melbourne's train network hit its usable peak 30 years ago. And they couldn't schedule any more trains in the in the rush hour, peak hour, because if they did, the, it would send the city into gridlock. And so we've had a very deficient train system. So the only thing that could be done was get rid of those level crossings, and there's over 200 of them. Oh, wow. So this program started, and so some of the level crossings, they've gone over, and some they've gone under. And on this particular project... Um, there was three level crossings, and so so, and they call these a package. 
And mm -hmm. so on this job, they had to do all the preparation work, get everything ready, do so much to be done, like it probably took 18 months to do the preparation work. Mm -hmm. And then they have what they call an occupation, or affectionately known as an OCO, right? Okay. And in the occupation, they close the train line and they go to and they do the work. Mm -hmm. And so on this occupation, they had 63 days to tear up the train lines, tear down three train stations, dig a valley that amounted to the biggest removal of earth in urban Melbourne history. They had to turn three roads into bridges. They then had to lay new train lines, new overhead cables and build three new train stations basically underground. Oh, wow. And they had 63 days to do it. And there was going to be a thousand people working on site around the clock. Hmm. And um, anyway, I was going past the site office and I thought I would drop in because I'd done some seminars for them. And I dropped in, I wanted to see the safety manager and he's busy, so I was just walking around chatting to some of the guys. And um, you would have sworn that they'd been told they were going to be facing a firing squad. They were anxious, they were stressed, they were agitated, very reactive. Mm. And each one I went to, I thought, oh my God, this is a disaster. So I went and knocked on the project manager's door, Steve, beautiful guy, really competent, great leader. And he looked up and he said, oh, John, come in, you know, so I walked in. And he said, what's going on? I said, Steve, somebody's going to die on this project. And he looked at me and he said, you think? And I said, I'll bet money on it. And he said, why? I said, because they're all so stressed out there. Hmm. They can't go into this project with them like that. And he said, yeah, I know. What can we do? And I said, you need to get them in a room next week. I want to talk to them. <clears throat> so we got hundreds of guys in. And I got up and had a talk to them. And I talked to them about what makes a great city. And, you know, and really the fundamental, the skeleton and the circulatory system of a great city is its infrastructure. And we talked mm -hmm. about roads and we talked about sewage and electricity and then we talked about train lines. And then I talked about how Melbourne's arteries are blocked because of these level crossings. And the vital nature of this work was to unclog the arteries of Melbourne. Mm -hmm. So I then started to paint the picture of what things were going to look like when these guys finished their job. And I said, all those people who are stuck in commuter traffic in the mornings, they'll be able to get on the train. And they'll get a seat on the train because they'll be able to run trains from the, the major destinations every two or three minutes during rush hour. I said, that means they're going to get to work quicker. They'll be more refreshed. They might have been able to knock off some work on the train. I said, they'll get home quicker and they'll be home earlier, which means they get to spend more time with their kids. Mm -hmm. It means that they get to get more involved in the community sports clubs. So more adults nurturing more kids. And that creates for more stable families. And I just kept painting this picture. Sure. And those kids are going to be able to grow up and live in that area and raise their families as well. Mm -hmm. And it's going to create this beautiful, amazing city of incredible communities 
because people have got more time and they're not stressed and they're able to move around the city more quickly. <laughs> and I said, so you guys are laying the foundation for one of the most incredible cities the world will ever see. Now, it took me an hour to paint that picture and take them on that mm-hmm. journey. You know? But by the end of it, they were all up on their feet, like, can we start now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were excited. They were like, wow. And they were so filled with purpose, you know. Anyway, the project started, away it went. It became the biggest tourist attraction in Melbourne for the next couple of months. There was, there was people queued up five deep around the fence watching the project. There was not a single accident. There was not an hour lost for anything. And the only two complaints were two slightly negative tweets about the bus service that was replacing the trains. <laughs> and and, and they, they completed it in 61 and a half days under budget. Wow. I, it, yeah. And it's all by painting a picture of purpose, creating pride in the work, um, yeah. in, in terms yeah. of driving that impact. Uh, very powerful stories. In, in the last little bit, you've talked to us about three of the main drivers of injuries. Uh, stress, you've talked about fatigue, and you've talked about distractions. Um, mm-hmm. And all bring themes and ideas from well-being, but that ultimately impact recordable injuries, that ultimately impact serious incidents. Uh, because we know that those three drivers are three very important drivers uh, of, of safety outcomes. So really cool ideas, principles here. I'd love to pivot to your book. Uh, you've published a book, In It for the Long Haul. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about the book, the story, and uh, why somebody should pick it up on Amazon or whichever retailer you use. Yeah. Actually, I just sell it off my website, actually. Ah, okay. and um, but it's, um, yeah, look, it's, it's really interesting. The, um, in Australia, we call it FIFO. So it's fly in, fly out. But there's remote work sites all over the world. And you said it earlier, Eric, you know, there's, there's oil and gas platforms all over the world. And, you know, the, the mines up in the north of Canada and, you know, remote mines in South America and, and Africa. And, you know, people are leaving home, going away for a specified period of time and working remotely, living in camps, and then going home again for a period of time. And it's become really significant in the last 30, 40 years um, as the world's demanded more resources. Sure. But, you know, people have been going away from home to work for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You know, as I say to the FIFO workers, when you fly across Australia, if you look out the window of the plane, you see that there's roads down there. Have you ever asked yourself how those roads got there and who <laughs> did that, you know? But, um, but anyway, what's been happening here in Australia, there's a lot of suicides on FIFO wow. work sites, you know? And there's a lot of relationship breakdowns and there's a lot of stress and mental illness and, and that sort of thing. And I'd been traveling out there delivering seminars and I knew the lay of the land and my life as well. You know, I, prior to COVID, I was traveling 240 days of the year sure. around Australia to North America and um, I was living out of a suitcase. So I know what it's like to be away from home. And um, anyway, I heard about another suicide and I just thought, man, I've got to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and I ran a survey 
And it was amazing, like 60% of the workers who responded to the survey said they went out to start their FIFO role with no plan. It was amazing, you know? Wow. And so I thought, I know how to do this. And so I wrote a book. It's a 250-odd page book. And I wrote about all of the things that come into play (laughs) to teach these guys and their families how to really master the skill of being a successful FIFO worker to turn it into something really, really good because they get paid a lot of money. And if they do it right, they can do it for five years, 10 years and set themselves up for life, you know? And um, so I wrote the book and the response to it has been great. Um, I'm really uh, just trying to push some of the big companies now to buy it in bulk and get it to all of their Mm -hmm. people so that they can really help. And, and, you know, the thing is, I know for sure that some guys won't read it, but they might take it home and their partner will read it. Sure. Know? Somebody in the house gets those skills. Yep. And what's more, the ones who do read it on site will have more understanding and knowledge to help their workmates. Sure. So that was the, the purpose of it. And, um, yeah, that's the, um, the cover of the book there. And it was so interesting when I got the cover designed, I told the designer... Um, what I wanted, a young Indian guy off that website, Fiverr. And, you know, I talk in the book a lot about finding your light at the end of the tunnel. Right. You know, your purpose in your life, your passion. And I also talk about taking care of your mates so they don't go off the rails. Now, I didn't say any of that to him, but he's come back with this picture of these miners standing with their back to the light. Some of them are on the rails and some of them are off the rails. It was beautiful. Very cool. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. I think you've, you've shared some very interesting, provocative ideas, again, against at least three key drivers of, of serious injuries that I can think of. Uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, uh, talk about uh, these themes and how do you bring well-being, how do you bring some of this, these concepts to the workplace, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, certainly, mate. My, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, and also my website is wideawakewellness.com.au for Australia. Perfect. And um, yeah, there's lots of resources there. And I'm more than happy to connect in with somebody and have a bit of a chat if they want, you know, because at the end of the day, this is about, you know, my whole mission in life is making sure that every kid on the planet has a good life. That means mum and dad coming home from work and yeah. coming home from work in a good mood, feeling good, you know. Very powerful. And uh, uh, remember those stories you shared. I think they're very powerful. The football story, the, the, the Melbourne construction project, and then the, the lady who was getting frustrated, agitated on the plane. I think we can all think about some additional ways to bring some acts of kindness and, and, and uh, care for others. So appreciate you sharing those stories. Thank you again for joining us. I thank you, Eric. It's been really, been really cool. And you do great work, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.